welcome back to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. Thank you all for joining us for another episode. Jenna, we're really excited today. We've got a really fun conversation about conservation and wolves and kind of the Southwest U.S., Mexican kind of uh, partnerships that we have going on down there to save wolves. So we're being joined by Meg Maggie Dwyer, who's the Deputy Mexican Wolf Recovery Coordinator for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We know you're really busy on your trip to Cincinnati, so thanks for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, happy to be here. It's great. Yes, Maggie is a conservationist that talked at one of our Barrows events. So we have Barrows Lectures, and if you haven't heard of that before, check out the zoo's website because it's a really awesome opportunity to hear people from all over come talk about the amazing work that they're doing. So I'm really excited to hear about what you do and how you're making such a huge impact. Um, but will you start by telling us a little bit about you and how you were interested in this or how you got to this position that you're in? Oh, that's a that's a maybe an uninteresting journey for others, but it was a really fun journey for myself. Um, I was the kind of kid that had the poster of wolves in, you know, my bedroom. And uh, I used to, you know, tell my mom that this stray dog followed me home when in reality, I like probably snatched that dog out of somebody's yard. And <laughs> drug it all the way home. Um, I've always really cared about animals and really liked animals. Um, but when I went to college, I had, I, I grew up in Southern California, and when I went to college, I kind of had my heart set on staying near the ocean. Uh -huh. So I, I wanted to do biology, but more marine biology to kind of make sure that I stayed near the beach. And I have completely failed in that <laughs> mission because now I live in New Mexico, which is entirely landlocked and has like the least water to land surface ratio of any state in the union. <laughs> wow. So um, as far as somebody who set out on a career and succeeded, I failed in what I originally wanted to do. Um, but when I was at, I went to college at UC San Diego and had the opportunity to do an internship at a facility um, called the California Wolf Center. And um, it's a captive breeding institution or facility. It holds Mexican wolves, um, does outreach and stuff with their gray wolf ambassadors. And just from my experience there, um, met some people who actually did what I do now um, and it kind of started opening the doors. I did an internship with the Fish and Wildlife Service um, right after college and sort of started changing my mindset of like, you know, well, I'm getting this opportunity to go work with Mexican wolves. Like, I'll go do it for a year, you know, because what, what person doesn't get to do what they wanted to do as a kid? Um, or if you get that opportunity to do what you want to do as a kid, like you, you take it, right? Yeah, so definitely. my, I'll do it for a year turned into, well, now they want me to stay and do this other position. I'm like, I'll do that for a year. And 21 years later, I'm still <laughs> doing it. Um, still going now, year by year. Yeah, still I went from an intern in our program to the deputy coordinator of it. Um, and it's been a wild ride and I don't, I don't regret any of it. You know, I, I, sort, I obviously miss water and uh -huh. being near the ocean, but um, it's been a really fascinating ride for me and I, I've enjoyed it so I feel lucky. I think it's amazing when people like have their passion you loved wolves since you were a child and had posters on your wall and follow it even though you weren't necessarily decided on that in college mm -hmm. but then there are jobs that exist that I have no idea exist until I talk to someone like you or I'm like how do you become a wolf conservationist and that sort of thing so I'm very interested but it sounds like internships are a good way to start and that's the same thing for the zoo field and becoming a zookeeper. So I think anyone listening out there who's like starting their career and you know you want to work with animals in some way, it looks or it sounds like there are so many different ways that weren't obvious to me. So, yeah, I didn't know what the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was in high school or college. Yeah. And so when I met the person who has my job now or had my job now, 
she worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service, and I had to look up what it was. And mm. when she asked me to do the internship, I, you know, I was like, where, who do I, who would I be working with? Um, which was a failure of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, maybe. I think we do better now to kind of advertise ourselves to uh, students and things. But um, similarly, right, I didn't, I didn't know how to get involved. I didn't, wasn't even sure that I wanted to get involved, you know. Um, I knew I wanted to work with animals. I didn't know a ton about conservation. So I was actually really lucky that I took that, that position or the internship with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service because I learned a ton, and I had no idea that there was an agency in our country doing so much conservation work and, you know, from wildlife refuges to endangered species recovery. It's, and they're everywhere, like in every mm -hmm. state. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a huge organization. And if you're interested in conservation or plants or animals or, you know, property rights, water rights, things like that, it's a great agency to work for. Um, but I, I do think that for being able to gain experience and being able to see some of the opportunities that are available. Internships are fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I just spoke with a group of students this morning, you know, and my advice to them was try everything, even if you don't think you're going to like it. I think some of the better, I, we hire a lot of interns and I, I, I'm on a lot of interview panels and some of the better answers to questions that or the ones that I enjoy are, you know, I did this job or this internship and I didn't like it. Um, and this is why I didn't like it, but I learned this, that, and the other about myself, and it's made me, helped me focus on where I want to go, and I know I want to do whatever they're interviewing for, for you know, sure. so yeah. I am always telling people, try everything, volunteer for everything, um, and see what you want to do, because there's a passion in you that you may not feel yet, mm -hmm. and that'll be awakened. Yeah, to me, it's always just as interesting with those opportunities to learn what you dislike and to learn what you like. And it sounds like that kind of paid off for you as well, right? You thought you were going to study ocean species and be a marine biologist, and mm -hmm. it turns out now you're in New Mexico Yeah, well, <laughs> wolves. And, and, like, to compound that, right, I thought that I liked wolves. I mean, wolves are wolves are great. I liked them as a kid, you know, and, and they're just another critter to me now. You know, they're, they're not really a fascinating species, actually, biologically. They're pretty basic. <laughs> they eat elk, and as long as people don't shoot them too much, you know, they do fine on the landscape. But what I learned is that the people aspect of wolf recovery mm. is, it's honestly fascinating. Um, people love wolves. People hate wolves. People love to hate the people that feel differently about wolves yeah. than they do, and um, some of the feelings that we have towards wolves are based on our own value system, right? And that looking at the West or how people feel about the West is, is kind of one way to look at this. Like some people feel that the West is like this area that we've conquered, right? We moved in and we, you know, we live on the range and we've kind of dominated the landscape. It's sort of an aggressive way to say it. But other people view the West as like one of the last remaining places of wildness that we have and it needs to be protected at like all costs. And so those systems are super far apart or mm -hmm. those values are super right. far apart from one another. And it's really challenging to find just, you know, those little gray areas of overlap, you know, to work within those spaces to say like, we actually all want the same thing. Yeah. You know, we want this place to be available for wilderness and animals and plants and stuff, but we also want you know, the people to still be able to live on the landscape and work and, you know, operate their ranches and whatever it is that they, they're doing, you know. So we do have a shared vision for what, what we want out of that, but what we bring to that vision is completely different, you know. So the, the wolf brings out these separate views of, but it's really based on, you know, it's these separate views, are the, it really challenges people's values, and they don't like to see the middle, but they're in more in the middle than they think they are. 
know, that's, so really that's the fun part for me. Is, yeah, I hear yeah. such opposing views from, mm-hmm. you know, the little I know about what's going on with wolves and just a lot of different species. It's always a people problem. And the, it's really like you have to figure out the people, not the animals. Mm-hmm. It's more like, yeah, I don't know. It's more definitely a people yeah. problem. Will you share with everyone listening what you know about wolves and, you know, how close to extinction, you know, the Mexican gray wolves were and just share about, you know, a little bit about their recovery and the program that you're doing. Yeah. So settlers, when we moved West in the 1800s, brought, we brought with us our livestock and moved into areas of the Western United States and the livestock outcompeted the native ungulate herds and um, wolves and other predators turned to livestock as a food source. And so in the mid or late 1800s through the mid 1900s, there was an anti-predator campaign that we tried to get rid of bears and mountain lions and wolves and coyotes. And um, unfortunately for wolves, it was really successful. And for Mexican wolves in particular, we shot, I think, the last Mexican wolf in the United States around 1970. And at that time, there were only estimated to be about 50 of them in the wild in Mexico. And... So there was a binational effort between the United States and Mexico to go down into Mexico and catch some of the last remaining wild Mexican wolves and bring them into human care management, you know, zoological facilities, and try to save the species from extinction or subspecies from extinction. And every Mexican wolf alive today can be traced back to only seven founders. So that's how dangerously wow. close Mexican wolves came to extinction. And um, through a really successful... Uh, SSP program, the saving, or not, we're moving to a safe program, which is saving animals from extinction. But through a really successful captive breeding program, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was able to envision trying to reintroduce the, the subspecies back into the wild. So these were Mexican wolves that had spent generations in captivity that we released out into Arizona and New Mexico, and, you know, we were hoping they would learn how to hunt, we were hoping they would survive, hoping they would reproduce, hoping the pups would disperse once they reached dispersal age and form their own packs, you know, hoping we'd still see some of those natural wolf behaviors even though they had been maintained in captivity for a couple of generations. So thankfully, wolves are wolves and they did great, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's an, I mean, it's not without a lot of struggle and it wasn't without a mm. lot of learning and trying to, you know, assist that wild population in growing, but you know, we went from zero wolves in the wild in 1998 to now we have 241 Mexican wolves in Arizona and New Mexico. And Which in Mexico, they started releasing wolves, you know, in 2011. Their population's trying to get off the ground. So it's been a really fascinating and successful conservation story. I was going to say, it sounds so mm-hmm. successful, but 241 still isn't that many wolves. Or is it based on the amount of habitat they have? Like... Do you know what the original number was for wolves? I mean, was it in thousands, I would assume? Yeah, and it's, it's tough to estimate how many wolves we had historically. They weren't widely studied before they were eradicated, and subspecies of gray wolves existed from, you know, Mexican wolves historically ranged on all of Mexico, mountainous regions in Mexico, through Arizona and New Mexico, and the northern, where the northern extent of their range, they interbred with the southern extent of the next okay. subspecies mm-hmm. range. And so it's a really blurry line all up and down the Rockies in the west, you know, from Mexico all the way up to through Canada and Alaska. Different subspecies of wolves kind of interbred, but, you know, Mexican wolves, their core population was in Mexico and Arizona and New Mexico. So, I mean, Obviously, there were a lot more than 240 wolves at, at that point in time. Um, our recovery goals for Mexican wolf 
include a population of at least 320 wolves in the United States, so okay. Arizona and New Mexico, and at least 200 wolves in Mexico. And once we achieve those populations, we'll look at whether there are still threats to the species to decide whether we can delist them. Um, if there are obviously still threats to the species, they wouldn't be delisted. But at that, that's the point in time when we'll start analyzing whether or not the population is truly recovered. Wow. Yeah, from seven founders to 241. Do you know how many were initially introduced into the wild after they were born, or bred in zoos and then released into the wild? In 1998, we released 11 wolves to okay. the wild. That was our first release event. And we were super excited about it, yeah. it, it you know, and but by year's end, only two of those 11 wolves were still alive. Mm. We, so we had a lot to learn and we had, a, and you know, it did take a lot of work to get um, enough wolves released so that some of them that did do well started forming their own packs and raising their offspring that were wild born. And that's when the population really transitioned into mm. some, you know, pretty significant healthy trend of growth, right? When those wild born wolves are having wild born offspring and we're not dealing with you know, I, I call them naive wolves, wolves that don't have wild experience. You know, it's tough. Yeah. You're yeah. taking an animal from, you know, some. it's been in human care, and we do our best to raise them in pre-release facilities where they're only fed twice a week. It mimics that feast and famine diet um, that they ex exhibit in the wild. And then we, you know, they're, that, that caretaker is in the enclosure for maybe an hour twice a week. Mm -hmm. And so it's really minimal human exposure. But even still, you know, they have to go out and they have to learn how to hunt, and they have to you know, learn how to maintain a territory. And so it, it's a big ask, but they, they did, obviously they did well enough, yeah. right? We now we have a population, a really uh, fast growing population. We grew 23% in the last wow. year. So That's we went awesome. from 196 in 2021 to 241 in 2022. So. Wow, that's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, That's one of the things that I think is so fascinating about this program is you hear a lot about um, kind of release programs from human care born animals and those tend to be with herbivores right it's really hard to do this with carnivores did you guys have to like supplementally feed them once they were released into the wild how did that work yeah we did so we would we would put them out on the landscape we generally would put them in a in a kind of temporary enclosure okay try to get them acclimated to the area and then one day when we would go into feed we'd just like quote accidentally leave the gate open and they would wander out on their own um but after that, we would even provide roadkill, deer, or elk until we documented the new pack to be hunting on their own, okay. which generally didn't take that long. You know, I mean, it, it did take them a little bit of time to be successful mm -hmm. at hunting, but, you know, within the first couple of weeks, we saw them trying to take deer or elk on their own. Um, but so it's a, luckily their instincts to hunt um, don't disappear, apparently, when even in generations of human care. That's awesome. That's what was the feeling like when you saw them actually get their first kill? I imagine you're like proud yeah. parents. On that. You know, I can't remember the first time I saw that, but I do remember we had a, early on in the program, we had a wolf get injured and we had to amputate her leg. Mm. And she was alone after that. Um, we released her back to the wild after we amputated her leg, and she was alone after that. And um, I was an intern at the time, and it was it was you know one of those moments where it was like it was sunset, and you know the trees were I don't know. And I saw her um, stalking a deer, like she was trying to sneak up on a deer, almost mountain lion like or cat like, right? Um, and when the deer noticed her, she took off after it. And she was catching up to it right when they crest this little, it wasn't even a mountain, right? It was this little tiny hill, but I couldn't see over it. And right when they, they went over the top, I assumed that she was trying to jump to make, you know, to try to take this deer down. 
And I never went and looked. She stayed in the area for a while, so I assumed that she was eating it. But I didn't have the heart to go and look because I just wanted to believe that this three-legged wolf could take a deer down by herself, you know. So, I mean, I I assumed that she did because she did stay in the area, but I I didn't have the heart to go verify. I wanted to believe, you know. When you were seeing issues with um, the first 11, was it from having trouble surviving in the wild or were they, like, poached by... A little people. bit of both, okay. yeah. Some of them were shot, and some so of that's because, you know, area. they were new to the area. People weren't familiar. We did a lot of outreach and stuff, yeah. but, you know, it wasn't a widely, locally, widely supported effort. Um, one of them, I think, was hit by a car. A couple of them, you know, we had to remove from the wild. Like, their mate died for one of those reasons, so we pulled them out of the wild, oh, okay. paired them with a new wolf, and put them back out. Um, it was a lot of kind of human manipulation, yeah. too, of the population, just to trying to give them a good chance of success. But, yeah, by that end of that year, only two of them were still okay. in the wild. You know, and we, we kept releasing more. In the first few years of our program, we were releasing 15 to 20 wolves a year. Mm-hmm. You know, so we were really trying to get, and, and not, we didn't expect all of them to be successful. Right. And so the few that were are the ones that really, you know, started that wild population. And then the few that weren't, it was like, well, we, we tried, you know, so. And that's that's part of the challenge, right, is yeah. you, you've got to put more out than you know are going to do well and, you know, deal with the, the, some of them became nuisance problems. You know, they were too visible, you know, by people. Um, and some of them did really, really well, you know, you just almost never know. When I first started at the Cincinnati Zoo in 2009, I taught our overnight program. So one of the programs was specifically about like wolves and we would go and talk about their success stories. And I don't remember the details at this point, but I remember hearing, or I believe we had um, pups born here that were released into the wild and we are part of the recovery program. Do you remember that at all? Or were you a part of, do you, would you remember if like the Cincinnati Zoo specifically had pups and you were a part of the release program. I want to so say there were like I, nine or ten of them. I feel like a long time ago, Cincinnati Zoo had pups, and ultimately, they, and I'm, I could be making this and up. And I could this be making this up. Like <laughs> um, I think they were moved to the Wolf Conservation Center in New York, okay. and they may have been used after that for release. But when Cincinnati Zoo had pups, we weren't doing our pup fostering program that we're doing now. So right now, we need to continue releasing wolves to the wild population because the SSP population has more genetic material than is currently represented in the wild. And Mm -hmm. with only seven founders, we really need that wild population to have everything it can have, right? The best shot at being healthy uh, genetically, so to speak. Um, so we need to continue releasing these more genetically diverse wolves from the SSP into the wild. But there's not a lot of support for continuing to release naive or inexperienced adult wolves. But there is a lot of support for doing this pup fostering where we take a 5 to 15 day old pup that's born under in human care, right? And we move it into a wild den, you know, a, a litter in the wild that's similarly aged. And so it's a lot of coordination between the SSP and the wild reintroduction program because we're trying to figure out who has puppies and when. And then very quickly, we're flying puppies from all over the country uh, to Arizona and New Mexico and hiking them into these dens and mixing them with the wild puppies. And then they get to grow up in the wild and be raised by experienced wolves. So it's this really great program, you know, and it's a really awesome way for zoological institutions to be able to contribute like meaningfully and directly to conservation yeah. efforts on the ground. 
Yeah, a lot of times here we get asked, like, did that animal come from the wild? Will it be released to the wild? And most often, there really isn't the habitat or safety and the ability for the animal to know how to live in the wild. And it's, you know, not something we do. But with our manatees and um, our wolves here, that is something that I think we're really proud of to be a part of here at the Cincinnati Zoo. And um, I hope that those wolves that were born that I'm thinking of really <laughs> didn't go a part of that program. But we'll have to find out. Um, do you radio collar them or track them once they are released? Are you keeping up with them just by, like, going out and looking for them? Yeah, every animal we release that is big enough to wear a radio collar, we will put a radio collar okay. on it. So these pups that we're moving, obviously, they're not big enough to right. wear a radio collar. But we do um, trap in the summer and fall until it starts to freeze and we'll any animal that we catch we'll put a radio collar on we collect blood all sorts of samples to run you know dna and and check for parasite loads and things like that just to keep a tabs on the population um about half of our population is radio collared and that really helps us that's a really high percentage actually yeah. for most monitored wolf populations it's like one or two collars per pack and we have half of all of our animals collared um, but that helps us during our uh, end-of-year population census or population survey. We'll fly a plane and go track all of the radio-collared wolves. Okay. And then a helicopter will find, you know, be told that location and come into that area and fly over the radio-collar or fly to the radio-collared wolves and then count all of the uncollared wolves with it. Okay. And in some cases, you know, if we need more collars in those packs or it's a pack that we fostered puppies into, we, we want to see if any of them are still alive. Um, we'll dart those uncollared wolves from the helicopter and land the helicopter and process the animal and fit it with a radio collar and vaccinate it and all the things that we do. Um, so yeah, we do have an active radio collaring program. It's a great way to, we get a ton of data from these collars. It's really fun to sit down at your computer and log on. You know, when I first started, you had to drive everywhere to do radio <laughs> telemetry or fly. And now, you know, with my slippers and a cup of coffee, I can just log on and see where their GPS collars are. So that's kind of fun, but... How much data do you have on, like, the success of the cross-fostering? Like, are you seeing those individuals survive to adulthood oh, and go on to breed? We're just now having, getting to the point where we've done enough of it to where, you know, some of our stats might be valid. Right? Okay. Um, so we've moved, I think, 83 pups from the SSP population to the wild over, I, we started doing it in 2014. Um, and so one thing to consider is that for a wild-born pup, natural mortality, you know, for most wolf populations is about 50% mm. in that first year. And if you take into consideration second year mortality, only about 34% of pups that are born are really expected to reach age two. And age two is significant because that's when they're sexually mature and they can breed and contribute to the population. What we're seeing with these fostered pups is that about 30% of them are okay. reaching age two. And that's just what we've been able to document. So it's probably a little bit higher than that. And what that shows us is that it's probably about the same as a normal, you know, natural wild-born pup, which means that the fostering program is working. That's awesome. Right, yeah. And so, and what's cool is we are seeing some of them, you know, breed, we're forming their own packs and breed and stuff like that. So that's great. That's the ultimate contribution to the wild population is that they, they grow up and they do breed. They pass on their genetics, mm -hmm. right, yeah. yeah. And it's it's kind of fun, you know, especially that we're able to document this. When when we put them into the den with their wild, new wild siblings, you know, they're the size of like a potato. <laughs> and so being able to find them over the next two years of their life or whenever in their life, you know, is kind of remarkable. Um, it is fun, you know, for our staff that when the helicopter darts an uncollared wolf and, you know, it comes in and 
we were able to confirm that it's one of those puppies that we put in a hole two or three years ago. You know, everybody feels this little sense of pride of like, yeah, oh, yay, it worked. You yeah, know, we did it. Definitely. So it's a pretty fun part of the program. I can be a softie and I worry about things like this and I'm just curious what the wolves do actually. So when you anesthetize one of them, what does the rest of the pack do and do they stick around and that one, when it wakes up, does it go find them? Do you worry about them being separated or any issues? Yeah, so if we're darting like whatever, an adult wolf or if we catch a wolf in a trap, um, wolves are really afraid of people so the rest of the packs like see ya yeah you know um and you know the animal we process the animal it wakes up and it does go right back to the pack you know we make sure we put it back in its territory and it, you know, and it knows just where finds it is. Them. Yeah, you know. and i don't know maybe they are all like oh you got a necklace now too you know, <laughs> you know what happened to you um so that's i it's it's not been a concern you know the, one of the things that we do see is when we're doing the pup fostering you know usually we will hike in with this you know little pile of puppies in a backpack <laughs> and the pack will go kind of bonkers you know they're running around they're we never see them mm -hmm. usually right but they're you can hear them barking and huffing and puffing they're not happy that you're at the den disturbing yeah, the den. Sure. Um, you know but we're quick we get in there and we mix all the puppies together we dna swab their cheeks and um, the pack almost always will move the den after we've oh. done that. Not very far, mm -hmm. like 100 yards or something, um, and establish a new den hole. And I think the reason why that works for us is that we're, you know, we try to decent our clothing and we try to make it look like we've not been there, but I don't think we're really fooling anyone. Yeah, right. I think what happens is the mom comes back to the den and actually panics, right? Like somebody's been here, my puppies have been disturbed, and she sort of scoops them all up moves them to another hole and immediately starts taking care of them probably while things are turning in her mind of like i think i have more puppies than i used to have <laughs> or some of these don't smell right but we're really capitalizing on her wolves are good moms we're good parents right so we're really capitalizing on her innate need or want to take care of puppies mm. almost before she recognizes i don't think some of these are mine right yeah. <laughs> man i have a lot more work to do <laughs> will you talk a little bit about their native history and like what they eat and why decimating the predator population can have effects on the elk or the prey population and just talk about a little bit about their hunting skills or things that are just interesting about wolves. Yeah, 80% of their diet has been elk, you know, so um, some of their diet is cattle, probably 10 to 15%, and that can be higher or lower depending on the prey density in the area where that wolf pack is occurring. Um, but 80% of what they eat is elk. Uh, I think one of the challenges we have, though, is that that wolf livestock conflict is real, mm. right? Um, it's why we got rid of wolves in the first place. It's why we don't want them back on the landscape today. So our staff spends a lot of time trying to mitigate that potential conflict, right? Trying to prevent depredations from happening. It is it is not a huge percentage of their diet, but when wolves, you know, if you're a rancher, a lot of the operations in the southwest are uh, smaller you know they're not running thousands of herd head of right. cattle and so when a wolf pack comes in and kills even just two or three cows it could be a significant economic loss to that permittee or that rancher so we do spend a lot of time trying to mitigate those conflicts and we've been pretty successful there are some things that work really really well what are those things one of the challenges that we seem to have is when wolves are denning so wolves you know if 80 percent of their diets elk there are elk and cattle all throughout their recovery area so they're they're preferring to eat elk um, but when wolves are denning they're locked to a little tiny hole in the ground taking care of puppies and they are going to prey on whatever's closest to them mm -hmm. and so if that's 
cows, or especially calves, cow calves, oh, yeah. um, we could have some pretty significant depredation issues. And so we work with the Forest Service and the permittee that if there are, you know, if we have a wolf pack denning in a certain area and we know that there are going to be vulnerable calves in that area, we'll work with the Forest Service and the permittee to maybe rotate the different pastures that where when okay. they're using which oh, okay. pastures so that the vulnerable calves are farthest from the wolves, you know, and then they rotate maybe to get closer to the wolf pack if they have to when the calves are bigger and okay. we're able to defend themselves. Um, there are some cases where we can't really mitigate things. You know, we do also hire range riders. Like ranchers are really busy people, so they can't ride their herd every day. And our allotments are very large in the southwest, so it's it's not really feasible for them to be expected to be with all their cows all the time. Right. Uh, so we will hire range riders to be with their cows all day, all the time. Wow, okay. And that, that also helps, too, because they can monitor where the wolves are and make sure that they're moving cattle away from them. Um, sharing a water source is always a challenge, you know, mm. wolves and cattle are using the same water source. Um, but in, in times where we can't really come up with a way to mitigate that problem, we will do a diversionary food cache for the wolves. And this might be like if the wolf pack is denning, um, we'll basically provide roadkill deer or elk to them once or twice a week or something in order to give them a meal every once in a while to reduce their need to prey on what's close by until sense. those pups, it's a short-term thing, right? It's until those pups are big enough to where if we can't move the cattle out of the area, we wait till the pups are big enough and then we haze the wolves out of the area, you know, and they'll go back to killing elk. So um, pretty fun kind of thing to try to manage unless, of course, you're the one that's potentially losing some livestock. Right. So it can be really stressful. Yeah. Um, and it is, and, you know, it, it is one of the bigger, I think, oppositions to wolf recovery and one of the bigger challenges we have. But, you know, again, it's uh, something that we can usually mitigate and the wolves do prefer to kill elk, which has been great. Do the ranchers seem to, like, have you had success with kind of helping them agree and want the wolves in the area as long as they are having help, like, protecting their livestock? Like, do you see them, like, their minds shifting, like, yeah, wolves are okay, but I need somebody to help, like, keep my... Yeah, not wanting wolves is a centuries-old, okay. you know, it's really ingrained in culture. And, you know, there are really good reasons for that. Um, so I don't think, you know, a lot of times we say that we're trying to work for tolerance, we're trying to work for acceptance. I think those things are actually really hard to achieve. I think what it is that we're really trying to work for is not having an economic impact okay. on ranchers in the area while we're recovering a species, right? Nobody's asking them to accept them or tolerate them. Just we want to them. We want them not to harm the people on the landscape while we're trying to recover this species. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. mm. And when you do, when you said you tend to see the most kind of loss when the wolves are denning, are the wolves eating more while they're denning? Obviously, they've got a litter to take care of. Like I feel like they typically hunt. Correct me if I'm wrong. Once, maybe twice a week. Like, mm -hmm. do you see that jump up to three or four times a week while they're denning, or is it still typically the same? I don't that we've necessarily looked at it I think it's more that they're they're localized to their den so they're gonna want to eat what's nearby and maybe what's easiest okay. right? so it, there might be a calories in calories out kind of thing especially if it's just an adult pair raising those pups if there's a couple yearlings involved they might be more willing to go further I don't I don't know I don't think like a wolf I guess <laughs> but, um, you know they might be more willing to go further to but it you know generally it's that they're they're stuck in that location because they're raising pups so they're going to prey on what's 
vulnerable and nearby. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I've read stories about, like, you know, kind of the 1800s, some of these massive wolf packs that ranchers used to see out west as they kind of explored the western areas. Obviously, this population only has 240 individuals. You said, how big is each pack? Like, what's the pack size typically? Mexican wolf pack size is smaller than what you would think you see in, like, the northern Rockies or even, you know, the western Great Lakes. Um, our pack size is generally the two adults the young of the year, so that that litter from, you know, that April and May, and maybe one or two yearlings that okay. haven't dispersed yet. So, you know, six is kind of a common number for us to see. It's not, it's not, they're not huge. We do have some packs that have been 10, 12, you know, every once in a while we do have a couple packs that are like, wow, that pack has a lot of yearlings with it. Um, I'm, I'm not sure why. I think that that's maybe been historically true for Mexican wolves, but I do know for sort of our recovery area landscape, you know, Arizona and New Mexico, I think, are like the fourth and fifth largest states in the Union, you know, and we have 240 wolves between both states, so they're not super densely populated, Mm. and there's a ton of elk in Arizona and New Mexico, so we're not at the point where wolves are really having to compete for food. Plenty of elk to go around for the 240 wolves that we have. I think maybe once we see the wolf population grow more and maybe start having to compete for food, we might see pack sizes increase because it's going to be, they're going to be more successful if they stay with their pack. Wolves hunt as packs, right? It's easier to kill something much bigger than yourself when you're, you have a family to help you hunt. Um, so we, maybe we'll see pack sizes increase when we get to you know, that higher density. Um, I, who knows, you know, but I do think historically Mexican wolf packs were generally smaller than northern gray wolves. But that's fun, really fun for you guys as researchers to be able to track that stuff in real time as it's happening, right? Like, <laughs> It's been fun to learn about Mexican wolves. You know, when we first reintroduced them to the wild, we didn't know a ton. We assumed a lot of behavior based on northern gray wolf research and stuff. We didn't study the Mexican wolf too well before it was eradicated from the wild. So when we released them originally in 1998, our prediction was that they would eat primarily deer because Mexican wolves are only 50 to 85 pounds. We thought they'd prey on a smaller ungulate and by by far they prefer elk, you know. So there are things like that that we've learned along the way of it's like, wow, you know, um, didn't didn't see that coming. We had this wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I just wanted to touch back on the predator-prey situation because I think some people are, are... they don't know the story, and I would probably prefer to you tell it for you to tell it. But isn't it that like without the wolves, the elk population skyrocketed, and then they were decimating trees in the area? Is that true? Are you familiar with this? And just how really it affects an entire ecosystem when you take like a large key predator out of the area? That idea is—it's known as trophic cascade, right? That the keystone species has a trickling, trickle-down effect on on all of the things in, in the environment. Um, there's been some research, or some—I uh, think there was a even a documentary kind of on the effects that wolves may have had in Yellowstone National Park. And the idea is that you know wolves prey on what's vulnerable. So that's the sick animals, the young, the weak, you know, and that is generally true, right? And so they do function to keep elk herds more healthy because they are weaning out those, you know, sick or aged Mm -hmm. aged animals. Um, What's challenging in the Southwest though is that that kind of, what effect that might be having on the environment. You know, there's this idea that, you know, wolves keep ungulate herds moving so they're not overgrazing in meadows or, you know, trees are starting to come back and riparian areas and stuff and you know everybody likes to attribute it to like it's because of wolves and 
there, trophic cascade wise, that's probably true. Um, it's really hard to document, especially in the Southwest, because the environment is so manipulated by people. Oh, so okay. even if it is happening, um, it's hard to say that it's definitively because you put a keystone species oh. back in the wild. And an example of this is when wolves kill elk, they do tend to take the sick, the weak, you know. Um, but when people kill elk, right, hunters go out and kill elk, we're taking the biggest bull right. with the biggest rat, you know. And so, and that, that's, we only have 240 wolves, right? And the hunting tags in the area are having a, probably a bigger impact on the elk herds than wolves oh, are, okay. at um. least yet, right? So I think we have to recognize that it's, it's maybe a little bit romanticized, okay. or at least it's really ideal that, you know, nature would work that way. And I think historically it did, but humans have such a huge yeah. impact on the environment that unless you have a Yellowstone National Park, which is huge, Right where you can study something like this and see something like that, it's really hard to replicate somewhere else. You know, we don't have a Yellowstone National Park. You know, most of the land that the Mexican wolves occupy is National Forest Service land, which is multi-use, multi-recreational. There's so many other things going on in the environment that it's really hard to say wolves are the reason for this other thing happening. Okay, mm. I'm glad to hear that from you, yeah. but. It is interesting to think about how everything, humans included, affect mm -hmm. everything around them. And um, I'm interested, what is, like, now, you know, you're not an intern anymore. Mm -hmm. Do you still do a ton of, like, hands-on in the forest? Or are you doing more meetings and, and you know, politic-type stuff? What does your day-to-day -day job look like? I am more meetings and politic-type stuff now, okay. obviously, uh, than I was as an intern or a technician or a biologist. I still do get to go out into the field, and I still do I kind of make myself go out into the field, you know, to remind myself why I beat my head on a brick wall every day. <laughs> no. um, but, again, I, I talked about this a little bit earlier, but I, I got into this. The field work is super fun and rewarding. Everybody likes, not everybody, but I like, you know, to hike and to do that kind of work yeah. and it is rewarding to catch a wolf and put a radio collar on it and so I really enjoyed that part of my career I think as I got more experienced with it though the people aspect of the program started um, feeling more I guess interesting or fascinating to me and I wanted to do more of the public meetings and the policy writing and you know um, trying to work with people at like a, a different level, not just on the ground with a rancher, but like working with people within the Fish and Wildlife Service saying, you know, we need to change this policy or working with our legislators on we need, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, that part of the program, you know, and, and working sort of with trying to be able to see everybody's different sets of values and how we can get everybody, not everybody, but how we can get people to see like some kind of commonality and work in that little gray area of we all actually can want the same thing we just want it for different reasons mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um that part of the program interested me more so i do much less field work today for sure okay mm -hmm. and part of the um kind of working with people aspect is the fact that this program is binational right it's a partnership between the u.s and mexico will you speak a little bit to what that entails like how big of an effort that is to undertake two countries working together on a recovery program like this it has always been a binational program from the day that we realized Mexican wolves were going extinct you know the last remaining wolves were in Mexico and our Endangered Species Act law had been passed recently so we had to collaborate with Mexico right away to say we need some of these wolves in a breeding program so that we can save it from extinction and it so it's been a binational effort from day one 
Um, and on so many levels, right? We have the SSP population, which there are 60 facilities throughout the United States and Mexico that hold 370 or so wolves right now, and it's managed as one single population. So mm. we get together every year and we figure out which wolves need to breed with which wolves. And sometimes that's a wolf in New York needs to breed with a wolf that's, you know, at a zoo in Mexico City. Obviously, that doesn't really work if somebody's flying somewhere. And so there, every year it's this, we're shifting animals around, we're working together to try to make that work. Um, and then that SSP population, its its goal or its purpose is to support recovery in the wild or restoration in the wild. And we started releasing wolves in 1998. Mexico started releasing wolves in 2011. And so all three of those programs are just intrinsically tied, right? We look to the SSP population to say, we need some puppies for release this year because we need to improve this great success story that we have going on in the wild. And Mexico's looking to the SSP saying, we need adult wolves to release because we're trying to establish a mm. population. And then our two reintroduction areas, the one in the U.S. and the one in Mexico, you know, we're talking back and forth on this, what, this is what works for us. And similarly, we're taking some of the wolves in the wild in the United States and moving some of those down to Mexico for release because wild wolves do better for release. So it's they're, all three of those populations are intrinsically tied to one another right now. Um, and will be for a very long time. It is a binational recovery program. Our, our recovery plan is a binational recovery plan. Um, we can't downlist or delist without both populations doing well. Um, so it's, it is and it has always been a collaborative effort and it you know, will continue to be for sure into the future. That's awesome. I feel like the collaboration is kind of what gives it strength, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's got two countries backing it. That's really cool. Yeah, what's fun about it too is that with the SSP population in particular, um, a lot of people who have been involved on both sides of the border have been involved for a really long time, not just a few years, but like decades, you know, so, and we alternate every year when we have our meeting, we alternate between the United States and Mexico. And what that's done over the course of, you know, 30, 40 years, it's allowed us to like share our homes with each other we share our cultures we you know we're going and seeing wolves at other facilities but it's more like this is my hometown and this is these are our offices or here's our recovery area or, you know so we've really gotten to become family honestly over you know several decades and that is one of the reasons why I think it is I mean I might be biased but I think it's one of the most successful SSP programs in the world um, especially considering that it's binational and trying to support two very different reintroduction sites. Mm. I mean, it just has a ton of challenges, and everybody comes to those meetings with their head held high, motivated to help, you know, wanting to do good things, and honestly, enjoying each other's company. That's amazing, yeah. You make it sound so special, and it's already really impressive at all of the success that this program has had. And then you, you're working with two different countries. It's mm -hmm. just incredible. And it's really refreshing to hear, because recently we're... Recently, we were talking to um, Tom Smith, a bear conservationist, and it was just, <laughs> it, there wasn't much hope. And it, mm -hmm. it feels so nice to hear that, you know, there's still tons of effort. And I we're so appreciative of everybody working, uh, you know, to help protect mm -hmm. bears. But it's so awesome to hear from somebody that really does have a very obvious success story to share and just remind people how important it is to care about conservation or, you know, that there are people out there that care about it. So... I'm, I'm so glad that you shared that with us, and I think it really is like one of the most special success stories I've heard. I think that our program is unique in that a lot of species are endangered because it's something that's really hard to fix. 
maybe climate change yes <laughs> or in an invasive species mm -hmm. or habitat degradation or something that a lot of conservation efforts do feel kind of overwhelming grim, yeah. right? yes. and I look at Mexican wolf recovery and I see these animals and I'm like gosh you guys you know I, I hate to say this because you know it sounds bad but biologically maybe one of the easiest species to recover they just need food mm -hmm. elk and for people not to kill them, right? right. For people mm -hmm. to somewhat tolerate them on the landscape. And that's really it, right? Yeah. Um, and so for me, it becomes about people, and that's that can be challenging and stuff, but the recovery or the potential for recovery for Mexican wolves is so optimistic and honestly quite easy. It's a human problem, right? And that's hard for biologists and scientists to focus on because we tend to focus on there's enough elk, we can put some wolves out, it should work, you know. Um, but, you know, it, it is challenging when I do look at other conservation programs, you know, and I've done some other work in the Fish and Wildlife Service, like tried to write a recovery plan for a spring snail that only existed in that spring, and that spring was going to go away with climate change. And I'm like, wow. And it was really hard for me to continue working on that when my mindset was like, but how? Right. Why? Mm. You know, and so I, I like working with Mexican wolves because the wolves are honestly the easy part and they're out there breeding, dispersing, forming new packs while we're all sitting at desks banging our heads on like, you know, what do we do next? And they're, they're doing pretty well themselves. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, yeah. I won't get back into the, the I was going to talk about the climate change and how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll skip that part. But is there anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap up? Um, I don't think so. Do yeah. you have any, like, favorite memories or, like, I know I really enjoyed the one you shared about the, your three-legged wolf chasing yeah. down a deer. Like, do you have anything like that? Yeah, Just you to... know, I have a couple. I, I mean, I think doing the pup fostering is really uh, one of the cooler things you can do with conservation mm. efforts. I mean, it's hard to take a potato-sized puppy <laughs> and mix it with other potato-sized puppies <laughs> and walk away and not think, like, oh, my gosh, that was really cute. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and then two years later, when you catch it as an adult, you know, not feel some sense of, like, motherly pride of, like, I did that. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I didn't have anything to do with yeah. it. But, um, I, so some of those memories, I think, are all our whole team. I think that's some of our favorites. Um, I do have, you know, back uh, earlier in my career when I was – when we were doing releases of adult wolves, I was in charge of managing the pre-release facility where, you know, I had to kind of pick which animals I thought were behaviorally suitable for release to the wild. Mm. You know, not every wolf passes that test. And so I would do a lot of observations from an observation blind. You know, the wolves didn't know I was there. And so I felt like I was getting to know them, mm. right? They hated me, terrified of me, <laughs> but I had, you know different sort of feelings for each one of them. And so there were moments in time where some of them would get picked for release and released to the wild, you know, and you're nervous as a, mm. you know, somebody that cared for them in one way yeah. or another, you know, I'd be nervous for like, the, you know, a lot of them didn't survive and, and, but some of them did. And it was those ones that did where it's like, you feel, a, I mean, I, you know, I, I definitely felt a sense of pride, like, you know, I picked the right one or yeah. it's doing well or yeah. something. So yeah, I, I definitely have some ownership, you know, not rightfully deserved, but I definitely have some ownership over some of the earlier success stories of like, yes, I picked the right one. We talk about that all the time, how we love yeah. learning our animals' behaviors and like getting to know them and knowing them on a special level and be, being able to see them do something and know exactly like that's their thing or something. Mm -hmm. 
and you know I can't imagine on your level of yeah you actually then released them and it was successful so yeah you should definitely take pride in that yeah, and learning those yeah. behaviors and getting yeah. to it's know anthropomorphic, them but from you know, afar it's a, that's it's okay. okay that's why you care yeah. right yeah. I mean yeah. um, I did have one other question I went to ask earlier is artificial insemination an option or have you guys considered that rather than having to move wolves or would it help it be success even more successful we have done some artificial insemination and had some success with it um we are lucky actually in that just by almost luck of the people who were involved in the program in the early 90s you know we had a reproductive specialist that was heavily involved in the program not because we thought we needed i mean we, we thought we needed a reproductive specialist because we thought we would have trouble breeding them oh, okay. in captivity they did fine but that reproductive specialist also brought to the table the idea of like you should you only have seven founders you should collect semen and oocytes on these animals and freeze them even though the technology to use them isn't here right now, but it will be someday. Wow. So we mm. have been collecting uh, semen and oocytes from wolves since the early 90s. Um, we have over 300 individual Mexican wolves, reproductive tissue-wise, um, on liquid nitrogen. Okay. And technology is starting to catch up with what we have on ice, you know, to be able to use. Uh, we've done, it, it, there are some, you know, luckily... Wolves are really similar to dogs in their uh, reproductive behavior, except for wolves only breed once a year. So we only get one shot every year to try this. Um, you know, so if we're testing something and it didn't work that year, that whole year is gone. Or not gone, but, you know, we learned something. It right, just didn't yeah. result in success. <laughs> but we have been successful using fresh semen for artificial insemination, and we've been successful using frozen semen for artificial insemination. We haven't tried the oocytes or in vitro fertilization okay. or anything like that. Technology's not quite there yet, but when it is, we'll be ready. Um, another thing that we've recently done is that um, we participated in a pilot study to culture and bank somatic cells, which you may or may not be familiar with. Mm -hmm. There was a recent cloning of a black-footed ferret. You need somatic cells to clone an animal. Where and, do you find somatic cells? Right, so we're doing an ear punch, like a tissue punch in the ear, and they can culture the somatic oh, cells okay. from that. And we've gotten all the way through the process of we've successfully collected, cultured, and now we're storing these somatic cells. Um, not that we have intentions of cloning wolves necessarily, but with only seven founders and with... Um, the SSP population kind of at carrying capacity, you know, we're doing a great job retaining gene diversity, but we are losing gene diversity every year, mm -hmm. a small, very small amount, but it's, it's not going up, right. you know? And so having those 300 individuals on liquid nitrogen and maybe even, you know, investing more in somatic cell culturing, we will at some point have the ability to bring wolves sort of back into the population to be able to breed an animal far after its death to be able to kind of give our, you know, managed care population a little boost in gene diversity that ultimately we would need to transfer to the wild, either mm. through pup fostering mm -hmm. or artificially inseminating a wild female, you know, something like that. So we are really lucky as a species recovery program that we kind of happened to invest in this long before we Huge had any intention. that yeah. specialist that yeah. saw, like, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. far ahead and thought that yeah. through. Yeah, so... We're in a great spot for once technology catches up with us. Oh, that's so exciting. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, if you don't have anything else you wanted to talk about, I'll end it with our what can I do? I, that's a tough question, <laughs> honestly. Um, so to support wolf recovery, um, I think 
what I like to share with people is getting involved with your the kind of local conservation efforts, local politics. Um, I was surprised when I got into conservation how much um, politics plays a role. And, you know, not necessarily in a bad way. I think people hear the word politics and they think negatively. But, you know, our local representatives, our, you know, nationwide, whatever, they are all doing something or involved in something that affects something that we care about, we just may not know. You know, so it's easy to say when, you know, wolf or grizzly bear or something has an open public comment period, you should provide comments, right? It's easy to say that, but I think to get a feeling or a sense of like actually kind of contributing to conservation, you know, even though it may not be the thing you care most about, there's a lot of things going on in, in local communities that people can get involved in and feel good about, right? From volunteering at a zoological institution to, you know, looking at local, um, you know, things that are trying to be passed and getting, you know, learning about them and getting involved by writing to your local legislative congressman or woman, you know, and just having a voice and having an opinion. And I really like the idea of teaching young people to do that. I think that we don't learn at a young enough age that that is how our voices are heard, mm -hmm. you know, it's through the people that we elect and through the people that represent us at higher government levels. So I really like to encourage people to look at what's going on in and around their community and try to get involved in some way. Would people interested in this be able to find this on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife um, website or where, where would you suggest looking for like these issues that they could have a voice on or learning it, more about them? In their local community, you know, I would look to their local representatives, honestly, okay. for, stuff, for stuff like that. There are a lot of things going on at a national level, especially with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. It's not very fun to read docket, you know, Federal Register documents. Yeah. Um, but that is where the Fish and Wildlife Service publishes everything, that we're taking comment on this, or we're needing okay. more information on that, or we're publishing, you know, drafted, we've published a proposed rule on how we're going to manage Mexican wolves in the wild, and those are your opportunities to provide feedback. They're kind of, you know, gray bureaucratic documents, but that is where the Fish and Wildlife Service does post what we're doing. But I think local community-wise, looking at what you're local representatives are working on and some of the initiatives that you may, you know, feel supportive or, or differently about. So this is something yeah. I'm totally, it's out of my wheelhouse and I'm, I want to be better at it. But so basically like Google, Google your local representative and then just research them. Yeah, and see like, what issues they're okay. working on. Yeah. Um, I, 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 this, I think that's just my experience. I'm mostly even my naivete. When I graduated from college and I went into conservation and wildlife work, I just had no idea that I was going to need to know so much about politics, yeah. you know. And again, not in a bad way, not that it's a bad word, but just like, oh, these are the people who are helping make these decisions. Yeah. I thought, you know, we just cared about water rights or cared about something. But, you know, those are the folks that are involved in, um, you know, making the rules and, and it's, you know, what we save. So Right, yeah. Definitely. That gives me some research to do. That's something that I definitely need to get better yeah. about personally and do some research, write to some local legislators and mm -hmm. get more involved for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you so much yeah. for spending time with us and teaching us all, all about the wolves and the success stories or the success adventure you've had. <laughs> <laughs> Program, I guess I should say. Yeah. Thanks um, for having me. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to hear from yeah. you. Yeah. Thanks for all your work, for everything you're doing for Mexican wolves. And to everyone tuning in to this episode, thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Have a great day. Bye.